Hello, and welcome to another episode of Jackson Talks. Everybody, with me, your host, Jackson Stone, and I am really excited for today's episode. We have an amazing guest for episode number 84 of Jackson Talks, everybody. Today, I'm joined uh, by Dr. Nick Holton. He is an international speaker, consultant, trainer, coach, and he's worked with some executives, business people, elite athletes, anyone really who's interested in, in optimizing their potential, actualizing their peak performance, and having a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment along the way. And Dr. Nick has a PhD in educational psychology, and we will be getting into some of the uh, meat and bones of motivation, of peak performance, of utilizing your strengths, some great stuff. I met Dr. Nick through the Flow Research, Flow Research Collective. I took a class called Zero to Dangerous, and Nick was actually my coach, and he was incredibly wise and insightful, and so I decided that more people should hear his wisdom, so he's on the pod. Thanks for joining us today, my man, Nick. Man, I appreciate that introduction, and I'm really happy to be here with you, uh, kind of on the other side of the screen, as it were, so you, you get to ask the questions this time around. Yeah, I'm not as nervous this time asking you questions as you were when I when I previously was with you on a Zoom call. So that's good. Cool. Appreciate it. Yeah, glad to hear that. So awesome. But no, I'm happy to be here with you. I always like talking shop and uh, I, I don't know how much, you know, wisdom and advice I have to provide. That's, you know, they, they always say there's a first time for everything. And that's maybe the first time I've, I've had those descriptors used with me, but I'll take it. I'll take it. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think I think you are. So at least you've helped me in my journey. So you never know. You might help one person uh, in this pod, but I think it'll I'm be a great try. conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to try. You bet. <clears throat> but for those people that are maybe listening to this episode because they follow you on social or they're fans of your work, uh, I always start this podcast in the same way with the same question. I think it's a very important question, one that we have the potential to answer honestly and openly in certain situations could provide us more uh, unity, more connection, more love. And I think that's really the way to go, especially in today's climate. We want more love. We need more love. And so I, I hope when I ask you this question that you have, you feel like you can answer it honestly and maybe vulnerably, but uh, Nick, how are you doing? Like, really, how are you doing? I'm tired, man. Mm. <laughs> um, yep. You know, you know, you. this is how we met. We talk about this a lot, but I try to live a, a pretty flowy, mostly optimized existence, at least, you know, through um, Monday through Friday or Sunday night through Friday, at least. Um, and we're sitting here on a, on a Wednesday evening. It's hump day, which is beautiful, right? About to enter the downhill of the week, so to yeah. speak. Um, so yeah, it's been busy. I mean, we were talking about it before we, I think, hit record, but it's been a productive busy. It's, it's positive stress for the most part. Um, but there's a lot of stress at the moment. Things are, um, pretty wild and a little unpredictable, a little volatile at the moment, kind of with a variety of things that I have going in primarily my professional life. Uh, but they're exciting things. They're energizing things, uh, but they, they can, you know, in the same way they energize you, at times they drain you a little bit as well. You know, that's not an either or. There's a both and in that situation, so. Yeah, the both and is like really, a really quite powerful thing to come to realize. It took me a yeah. while to understand that I could feel, uh, that I could feel like really good, really motivated, uh, and have sense of meaning in my work, but also feel like quite tired and, and a bit overwhelmed yeah. at times as well. 
Um, and I feel that like with a lot of like happy and sad emotions, you know, like maybe I'm at like a family function and I'm feeling loved by all my family members to be around them. But at the same time, I'm also missing the ones that aren't there. And like yep. in those instances, that's when I really realized the both and, and then I tried to apply that to other areas of my life because it made the most sense in that situation. So I, yeah, totally agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, I think there's a richness to having those sorts of experiences, right? Like, I don't think you want the either or. I think you don't want just sort of only one experience or preponderance of a single experience. Um, I think there's something to be said for having kind of psychological range and emotional range and experiencing a variety of things that life has to offer. And I always think too, when it comes to kind of the performance and productivity piece that, you know, if you're, if you're not a bit tired at the end of the day or in the middle of your week, um, you know, maybe you have a little bit more to give, so to speak. I want to be careful there. I'm not suggesting burnout, you know, better than anybody, how, uh, how I and folks I work with feel about burnout. Um, but I, but I do think you want to try to drain the tank and live life and get after things. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that that psychological range it makes me think about our society's uh, obsession over happiness. Mm. Is that, is that click for you in any way? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, as you know, I think, you know, but I spent a lot of time looking at um, science from various fields, neuroscience, positive psychology. I ultimately spend most of my, my days and evenings studying the science of human flourishing. So this question of happiness or, you know, what we, when we in the field would, uh, probably define as well-being is one that I think about all the time. But uh, as you're, we're sitting here today and you're asking, it's even more pertinent because I recently just started a book in preparation for a, a podcast that I'll be co-hosting and launching with Dr. Jonathan Beal, um, and which we will be uh, interviewing Emily uh, Asfahani-Smith, and she's written a book called The Power of Meaning. Really, really wonderful book. She has a hugely popular TED Talk. And the reason I bring this up is the opening chapters of the book really rail against the prioritization and the emphasis on the chase and pursuit of happiness. And that paradoxically, and we know this from a variety of studies, a lot of times when we try to consciously and intentionally chase happiness as some sort of outcome to be grasped, instead of kind of building in the structures, the habits, the routines, the mindsets that allow us to live a good and psychologically rich life, we paradoxically set ourselves up to have less happiness. Mm. Um, so she's actually a huge proponent as the title of the book implies of the power of meaning uh, as something to be kind of pursued and cultivated and prioritized over this sort of loosey goosey, positive emotion or pleasant emotion based happiness. So yeah, I've been thinking about it a lot in general but especially the last week or two. Yeah, interesting. So with that, can you give, uh, before I ask some of my next questions, can you give people uh, a bit more insight than I did in the intro about the specific work you do, like who you work with and who you consult with specifically in terms sure. of yeah. uh, human yeah. flourishing? So, yeah, my, my, I think professional life is really broken down into probably four or five parts. So I am a, uh, for most of my career, an educator. I've worked primarily in schools. As you mentioned, my PhD is in educational psychology. 
But I really went to pursue the PhD because for the most part, I looked at the students in front of me. And this is across a range of institutions, poor schools, rich schools, Michigan, Los Angeles. Um, I now am sitting in Philadelphia, going to become nomads in the next year or so. And I looked at a lot of the kids in front of me and said, basically, this sucks. Like, these kids are awesome. I love the relationships. The content's somewhat interesting, but this isn't inspiring anybody. This isn't helping them actualize their potential. This isn't tapping into sort of their greatest motivators. And I want to figure out how to do that for more kids and as it would evolve more people in general. So over the course of the years, if things have evolved, I started diving into, like I said, positive psychology, human flourishing, different types of well-being. My dissertation was on eudaimonia, which uh, um, Emily writes about in The Power of Meaning. This is a meaning-based form of happiness or well-being. And one thing led to another. And um, so now I, I kind of have four primary pro projects um, or things that I do. I am a peak performance coach for the Flow Research Collective, which is how you and I met. Mm -hmm. So through that, um, I'll work with a lot of CEOs, um, execs, entrepreneurs, uh, some professional athletes, um, pretty much anyone looking to kind of optimize their life and perform at a higher level and reach those sort of potentials that I mentioned, I felt like I wasn't helping, you know, many of my students get to. Then I'm also a consultant. Um, so I've worked for a few different businesses, um, do a lot of publishing, writing, speaking in that space. I currently consult for the Shipley School here in Philadelphia, which is a K through 12 independent school that's really focused on uh, what we call quote unquote positive education, education for human flourishing. I co-direct a program with them, with Dr. Sharon Russell. Um, as I mentioned earlier, currently working on launching a podcast that will be co-sponsored by the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard and the Department of Education at Oxford. And that'll be with uh, my friend and colleague, John Beal, who works out in London. Uh, and then I do a lot of freelance work as well. So I have some of my own private clients. I work with uh, some folks in the NBA, collegiate sports, my alma mater, Michigan State, and a program there. Yep, yep, go green, uh, Spartans. And um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that, you know, that takes up most of the time there. But I'm also building my own courses and platforms out, trying to bring some of this science, which um, is, is a little bit, uh, elitist in some ways tends to be a bit accessible for kind of those with, um, you know, kind of the money to, to throw at it. Sometimes I want to build some courses for busy parents. I want to build some courses for young people. I want to, you know, try to democratize some of it a little bit and open it up uh, so it's more accessible and we can really kind of help a lot more people tap into their own potential. And, and I think if we can create a lot better me's, we can create a lot better things for, for we so to speak, right? Mm. Tap into the individual to build the collective. It, it does seem like some of this information is hard to access yeah. because all of the courses cost money, mm -hmm. right? I mean, of course there's books that you can read, there's podcasts, there's lectures on YouTube, but it's hard information to grasp if you're not like getting coached through it or working with someone one-on-one -on -one and trying to really get into the the details, the minute details of this information, you know, it's, it's very similar to like getting a personal trainer or getting a massage, right? These things are extra in your life. Um, and if you can't, you know, afford rent or you're thinking about where your next meal is, things that are very, very important for your survival, 
you're not thinking about really how you can flourish in your human existence, but really if you could focus on that, all those other areas of your life would also benefit most likely, uh, I think. So I think yeah. that's, that's a brilliant idea to do that and make it more accessible. Well, you hit the nail on the head and that's part of why, you know, as a career educator, ultimately my true passion and sense of purpose is, is to mess up, at least in the United States, uh, education, the way it's thought about, the way it's done, in part because of what you just mentioned, right? Um, I, I'm not so convinced, so I'll, I'll pick on my own, you know, subject. I have a bachelor's degree in history and I taught it for a decade. I'm not so convinced that we should be spending years and years teaching history when kids have no fundamental understanding of motivation, emotional intelligence, resilience skills, how to focus, how to develop, you know, grit, willpower, self-control, um, all sorts of different things that can enable them to really be sort of the best version of themselves. Um, so I would like to see those as sort of the fundamental and the essential, right? Kind of the automatic, not the electives not the additional, not the if we have time to get to this sort of thing. Um, so it, in many ways, it's it's thinking about kind of flipping the system on its head a little bit, moving away from just sort of, you know, test scores, grades and content knowledge and more focusing on individual experience, self-actualization, as, as Scott Barry Kaufman would say, and, um, you know, thinking about the system quite differently. Amazing. Yeah. Do you think, do you think that people don't focus on those, some of those skills that you mentioned because, um, because they don't think they're trainable maybe, or they don't think they're relevant or because you can't like, uh, there's no metric to test how well someone is or not doing. Why do you think that that's the case? Uh, I think there's probably a lot of variables at play. I don't think it's monocausal, mono so to speak. Um, if I were to label a few, having spoken to a lot of parents, um, <clears throat> I think a lot of parents in the United States look at the system and say, like, this isn't it. This isn't doing it for my kid. This isn't necessarily preparing them for life or, you know, helping them understand who they are. But they're also not willing to get off that train. They're a little scared, right? There's a certain pressure to play the game you know, um, advance to the next level, get the grades, take the tests, go to the certain schools that have big names and all that sort of stuff. So some of it's fear, I think. Um, some of it's comfort with the status quo. I do think you're right that in some cases, people don't know what they don't know, um, or they think maybe that some of these skills aren't trainable. They think they're quote unquote soft skills. Um, that school is for, I've had a lot of teachers and colleagues tell me school is for learning. And I basically respond, yeah, no shit, Sherlock, but what are we learning? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I like, I'm still all due respect to, I got a lot of friends who are wonderful, wonderful teachers and math teachers. I'm still waiting for the day. Pythagoras theorem comes in handy for me, but I use emotional intelligence every day, or at least I try. My, my, my wife might disagree or tell you some days I could use a little more of it than others. Um, so yeah, I think some of it is uncertainty, ambiguity, fear, um, you know, comfort with the status quo. There's a lot of different things playing into that. Um, and it's, it's been this way for a long, long time. So got it. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. But, um, so onto, onto my next, uh, question or, or topic that I kind of want to discuss, um, is that you mentioned that you work with elite athletes, MBA, college. Uh, and, yep. business, and business execs, so elite performers in the business world. I'm very, um, what's the word? Um, 
um, interested, <laughs> there it is, interested in that because I once was a division one athlete and now I work with, with young kids. So I'm trying to get them to that level if they choose to, yep. to go on that path. Um, there's no hacks. I don't, I'm not asking for hacks or quick tips or any of that kind of mumbo jumbo, but I am sort of asking uh, what you've learned from working with them and how has that impacted your own life? Yeah, athletes have the same problems everybody else does. Mm. Um, I think trying to tease out and separate quote unquote sports psychology from, you know, other forms of psychology and psychological research, uh, thinking about well-being is probably an incomplete view of what is required to be sort of the, the ultimate performing athlete. I think a good example, you know, I'm obviously a big sports guy, I've coached for a long time, um, you know, played at a relatively high level myself. And so I follow a lot of different sports, a lot of different athletes. Look at now, you know, you can, you can find peak athletes, the Tom Brady's, the LeBron James, um, you know, that they're, they're spending, I mean, millions on um, not only their bodies, but on their minds, right? Active recovery. Um, LeBron's what spokesperson for the calm app, right? Mindfulness and meditation. Um, <clears throat> the athletes I work with, particularly a lot of times they're dealing with anxiety. They're thinking about how to manage stress. Uh, we hear more and more about athletes that after they retire, they talk about, you know, playing games while they're, you know, high on certain substances just to help them cope with some of the pressure and the things that they're dealing with. It's, it's just not physical. I, I always think of like, I like the line from Dr. Andrew Huberman, who has a wonderful podcast that, you know, really nothing in life is maybe 80% mental and 20% physical or vice versa. It's all 100% nervous system. So if you're not dialing in all these different components of our biology and the human experience, you're missing part of the equation, right? So the way that I approach it, and I'm currently building a kind of a sports psych program with a colleague of mine who, who works with some NFL players, professional golfers, MLB, that sort of thing. This is really what we want to kind of bring to the extent that we can to the field is more of a holistic look, not just on the performative side, but the well-being and the mental side as well in ways that enable the physical side to kind of thrive and flourish a little bit more, right? Look at it more holistically, not just try to separate body and mind and treat one more than the other. Um, first off, uh, I'll be your test dummy for that sports site course. So you can send it. It. Love it. Yeah, you can great. send it my way. Uh, very interested in that. Yep. Uh, but yeah, I'll definitely take your course hundred percent. Awesome. But also, uh, I, I think I've had this discussion with, with a few people to some of my old college buddies about how to make it possible to strive for one goal. That's like pretty hot, like pretty lofty goal, like, you know, NFL, NBA, Olympic, and, you know, being almost one track minded, kind of obsessed because you sort of have to be if you want to get to that level, but also being able to maintain your health and your wellness and not reaching that peak and then getting there and having the experience and then having just like everything else fall apart. Like, is that possible? How do we do that? I know you kind of just spoke about it, but. Yeah, well, I think you touched on a, a couple of different levels or elements of this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you mentioned the word obsession, right? So what, what I hear when I think about that is, is passion, right? But there are different types of passion. 
There is obsessive passion where you feel really kind of compelled to do something. It doesn't necessarily come with a preponderance of pleasant emotion like we associate passion with. Then there's harmonious passion which does come with that preponderance of pleasant emotion. And it's aligned with an authentic self, a sense of self. We're intrinsically motivated. We engage in experiences that are autotelic, right? And you'll know this word from some of your work in flow, experiences that are in and of themselves rewards. So when you can find a passion, Right, where something is in and of, but we don't mean it in a negative connotation. We mean in a, you love to do it. Mm -hmm. That I think is one of the first fundamental keys to reaching these highest heights, because ultimately, as you described, it takes a certain level of diligence, discipline, maybe you want to call it obsession to be in the gym every day, right? To be on the course every day, to be in the pool every day, whatever the sport is, right? You know, Tiger Wood, like I've sometimes heard that in order, you know, in golf to change your swing, maybe an inch, you need to hit about 10,000 balls, mm. right? So the other important part of that is sort of the back end. So if what we're talking about here is kind of the process, the pursuit, right? And you all often hear that it's really not about the destination, it's about the journey, okay? Well, I think some of the most elite athletes are really fueled by both. They like the journey, but they also care about the destination as well. What do I mean about the destination? If you rely only on the destination, you're setting yourself up for a pretty big disappointment and fall because the destination, while satisfying, so say it's a championship, a title, you know, play, being a division one athlete, winning a conference championship, right? It'll vary depending on people and their goals. The destination and the satisfaction experienced from reaching it is temporary. You're going to experience what we call hedonic adaptation. Hedonic adaptation is our tendency, and this is kind of a neat little ability for human beings, to adapt to that which makes us happy and unhappy. Okay, so we have a set baseline level of happiness throughout the course of a day, week, month, year, whatever. The good things happen, bad things happen, but we bounce back. So this is sort of in, in some part on a psychological level, you get a new car, you're excited about it. Well, that feeling fades. Eventually, you're going to want a new car, get a new pair of sneakers, hyped about them. Eventually, that feeling fades. Have a spouse, right? There's good science that shows like the honeymoon periods are a real thing. And that on average, couples return to baseline levels of happiness about two, year, two years in. We get used to things. We get used to each other. And this includes goals. Okay? So you reach the top of the mountain, that might be satisfying, will likely be satisfying, but it's not going to last. So you better enjoy the ride on the way to the top of the mountain. And that brings us back to that sort of idea of harmonious passion. It's not really the journey or the destination. It's a bit of both, I think, psychologically speaking. But I think most of the the peak athletes that you see, some of the best of the best, they have this harmonious passion, right? Um, Kobe, LeBron, Tiger, Brady, um, you know, Chloe Kim, we're headed up to the Winter Olympics right now. They love doing the work, right? They seem to anyway. It's not like I know these people personally, but they, right. from afar, they seem to love the process. Yeah. You mentioned hedonic happiness. 
Is there a other side of the spectrum of that word? Is there an opposite of that? That's well, I kind of mentioned it earlier and I wouldn't call it an opposite, but it's a distinguishment. There's a lot of different scientific types of well-being. So hedonia is one of them. And a lot of your listeners have maybe heard the term hedonism, right? This is a, the same idea. So it's basically an affect-based well-being. Affect is basically means emotion. So if we are hedonically happy, we're probably gonna have the presence of more pleasant emotion than unpleasant emotion, right? If we're unhappy, more unpleasant than pleasant. This typically is my understanding of a lot of the research is not a very good predictor of overall life satisfaction. It's momentary, it's somewhat subjective, um, it doesn't always last. There's a variety of flaws with sort of the pursuit of this hedonistic lifestyle, right? To each their own, everyone has a little, you know, some different preferences, but um, going back to hedonic adaptation, if you're constantly chasing something that you're just gonna get used to anyway, you essentially set yourself up to be a dog chasing its own tail. You never quite catch it, okay? So that's problematic. Another type, which I mentioned I wrote my dissertation on, is eudaimonia. And this is really the cultivation of virtues, of character, experiencing per personal growth, and finding something meaningful to care about and to contribute to. Okay? And I mentioned the book, The Power of Meaning. This is really what that book is advocating. That does tend to be highly predictive of overall life satisfaction. And then you can get into other you know, topics and concepts. What is life satisfaction? It's more holistic, it's retrospective. It tends to be a bit more stable, whereas eudaimonia and hedonia could sort of move you know, moment to moment, day to day. Life, action, uh, life satisfaction is gonna be a little bit more static. Uh, subjective well-being, which is pleasant affect, negative affect or unpleasant uh, affect and overall life satisfaction. Flourishing, you know, I'm sitting here in Philly, close to the University of Pennsylvania. They're big proponents of a model called PERMA or PERMA-V, P-E-R-M-A, positive emotion, engagement, relationships, which is one of the single greatest predictors of life satisfaction globally, meaning, accomplishment, and vitality. Vitality is, you know, uh, physical health for the most part, energy, vibrancy, sleep, nutrition, movement, things of that nature. So there's a lot of different ways, you know, scientists, we like to be super specific and kind of like overcomplicate things at, at times and sometimes appropriately complicate them. So yeah, hedonism is really just one form. And I think, you know, the research is, uh, you know, shown for the most part, not necessarily the most useful uh, or the most robust. Wow, that makes, uh, it makes a lot of sense to me because I I'm doing this course. I'm doing another course right now. Big shocker. But anyways, uh, the module one is called eudaimonology. Okay. And it's basically, they phrase it into the study of a good soul. Okay. Uh, and they phrase that into being flourishing via virtues. Yep. And I just did that module. And then now you're speaking about it. And so like, uh, yep. by proxy, you're still coaching me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I love it. Yeah. The job never ends. Yeah, that's uh, right. That's right. But, yeah. I mean, it's an old, old term. It's an, you know, it's an Aristotelian term it goes all the way back to ancient Greece. The basic idea was develop these virtues, use them to be a good citizen was sort of the, I think the simple translation as well as I understand it. I'm not an ancient Greek scholar or philosopher by any means, but 
the modern context, it's a little more complicated. Um, uh, a friend of ours and a friend of the show, I mentioned the podcast, Flourish FM, we interviewed Dr. Todd Cashton, excuse me, who's a professor of well-being at George Mason. And I just saw him post on Twitter the other day. I think, I think there's 63 different sort of definitions or conceptualizations of eudaimonia oh, wow. in the scientific literature. So like I said, sometimes we overcomplicate things a little bit. <laughs> That's so much. 63. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll stick with the the flourishing basically via virtue is good for me. Right. It works yeah. for me. Yeah, love it. Um, yeah, so on, on to my next kind of subject with I think, which basically encompasses all of this stuff, right, which we heavily discussed during my course at Zero to Dangerous. I got really interested in flow. It's a magical thing. Um, could you just describe flow and what it means uh, and how can it be applied to uh, you know, human flourishing, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, and I won't spend too much time on the different definitions, but you know, like we just said with eudaimonia 63, there's sort of different conceptualizations of flow, but I think some of the unifying components or characteristics is that it's a state of deep immersion, maybe the deepest immersion, right? So you get completely absorbed in what you're doing. There tends to be a feeling of oneness with what you're experiencing, meaning there's a loss of sense of self. Uh, there tends to be a, a dilation of time. It might speed up, it might slow down, kind of move you know, frame by frame, sort of in slow motion. Um, the inner critic shuts down. You're sort of optimized in sort of this challenge skills ratio, which requires very, very deliberate attention. Um, and in a more spiritual sense, which is sort of the other form, there tends to be kind of this deep sense of meaning and connection with the things around us. That's what I mentioned earlier about that, that sense of oneness, right? So, um, you know, most people can kind of gravitate to and understand this idea. It's not mindlessness. It's not zoning out. In sports terms, I think the closest thing you can come to is sort of getting into the zone, right? Or being clutch at the end of a game. For runners out there that listen to the show, uh, you know, this the closest thing you're gonna experience is probably the runner's high, so to speak. Um, but it's not mindless, it's not habitual, it's deeply, deeply engaged and focused. And so the simple example is anything you do where you can kind of put your head down, get into it, and time can pass without you really noticing, right? Oh, I thought I was doing that for 15, 20 minutes. It's been two hours, probably in flow during that, right? Something along those lines. And I think an important part of talking about flow is that some triggers for flow are things that are not good for you. Uh, that's important too, because like, you know, if you're robbing a bank, you're going to get into some flow because there's a lot of the triggers there that we can discuss that will uh, get you into into the zone or into flow. And so I think that's important too. Yes, as you recall, you know, Flow Research Collective and uh, the executive director, Stephen Kotler, who's written multiple really wonderful books on uh, what he describes as flow, uh, he calls it the dark side of flow, right? Multiple dark sides, as you said, some of the triggers are not necessarily good for you. This would be things like risk, right? Risk inherently drives attention and causes us very often to be deeply immersed in what we're doing. It doesn't mean what we're doing is safe or healthy. Right. 
Um, same sort of thing with challenge skills balance. You know, uh, Stephen really spent a lot of time studying flow with extreme sports athletes. Um, that's, you know, a lot of broken bones, like possibly death. Um, but that also is, you know, there's a little bit of risk reward in that. Those are some of the people who most experience flow and who experience that sort of transcendental or, or deeply meaningful and kind of oneness and connection with the things around them. So it's an interesting area to explore, but yeah, you're absolutely right. You got to acknowledge the dark side. I'd also add one more other dark side, which is um, if you find sort of primary flow activities, things that help you get into the state can be quite addicting. Mm. So if you potentially lose that activity, like as a former, you know, division one athlete, professional athlete, athletes struggle with this a lot. You have to retire. You no longer play your sport. You lose your source of flow. Um, you know, you've got to replace some of that really positive neurochemistry. Well, you don't have to, but certainly there's a drive to replace a lot of those very pleasant experiences. And sometimes um, they seek out uh, those neurochemicals from other sources, you know, uh, most commonly drugs and things of that nature uh, to try to rebuild and re-experience that. So that can be another dark side of, of kind of a flowy existence as well. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Michael Gervais talks about the dark side of, of sport all the time mm -hmm. and how parents who are trying to push their kids to be their best, which is, you know, great and coaches the same, should also have an understanding of what that kind of path that we talked about, that harmonious passion uh, can, can lead to, because it can lead to some really good things, but there is a dark side to all of that. And I think understanding the consequences of both are important for for young coaches who have young athletes and for parents in general who are pushing their kids into sport who may have never made it to that kind of level where they have a full grasp of that concept. But yeah, and so how do you think flow uh, impacts you know human flourishing or peak performance? Yeah, well, so earlier I mentioned one of the conceptualizations of human flourishing, that PERMA V model. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned the E engagement. <clears throat> that is essentially flow and eudaimonia and the cultivation of character, depending on how you kind of want to conceptualize it. So flow is a form of deep engagement. I think flow <clears throat> is one of the most important sources uh, uh, to create flourishing for a lot of human beings. And for many human beings, it's the source, right? It's maybe the only thing they care about, certainly one of the primary things that they care about. Um, it's something that we chase and pursue. Like I said, it, it creates a lot of positive neurochemistry. So it's typically associated with high levels of meaning in life. It's typically associated with increases in well-being. Um, it's a significant marker of what we would sort of loosely call happiness. Um, it's not the only thing, but it is a major thing for many, many, many people. Absolutely. Yeah, flow is so interesting, you know, just this one little word, you know, means so much. It can do so much for you uh, in terms of, you know, reaching your infinite potential and all those amazing things. So that's, Absolutely. yeah, that's super cool. I mean, I can ask you like 700 questions and we could probably talk for five hours, but I, uh, to be you know mindful of your time and your busy schedule, I have uh, one big, one big more rock. I want to get into the container before I let cool. you go. And cool. you mentioned some of these phrases earlier about motivation, but there's intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. 
Yeah. And I think having a bit of both uh, is really what drives people. You obviously want to be on one side or the other. I think that's important. But could you explain those two phrases and and where you see, um, you know, people should not should, but could potentially lay if they want to achieve something? Yeah. So earlier when I mentioned harmonious passion, right, uh, one of the things we want to talk about is this idea of intrinsic motivation. And this is a big part of some of the training that we do at Flow Research Collective, which you experienced. It's a big conversation in education. Um, so it's important to understand this because it can unlock a whole lot of really great stuff. So it's useful to think of there's a lot of different forms of motivation. But in this particular case, when we talk about intrinsic, extrinsic, and a motivation, which is the absence of motivation, you can think of it as a spectrum, right? So a motivation, there is no motivation. There's really no value of kind of, you know, what's in front of us. There's no reason to act or behave. We're just sort of lethargic and don't care about much. Then you start moving down that spectrum Okay. And you'll get into four different sort of subtypes of extrinsic motivation. We won't spend too much time getting into the subtypes, but I'll give you the characteristics. So first, there's purely extrinsic motivation, which is basically compliance, right? I do this thing because I have to, because there's some external reward or punishment incentivizing my behavior, right? Pushing my behavior. So I take out the trash as a teenager because I want the allowance. I show up, you know, by curfew because I don't want my parents to be pissed at me, right? Those sorts of things, okay? You can see already why there's some flaws of extrinsic motivation, right? right. Um, as you start to move down the spectrum, what you get is less non-valuing, less compulsion, right, or compliance, and more alignment with the self, okay? More authenticity. So as you move down that spectrum and you get closer and closer to intrinsic motivation, we start to value right, certain things a bit more inherently. I mentioned autotelic experiences earlier. They're congruent with the self. They're synthesized. We see the inherent value. And what that does is move the brain's prediction because motivation is a prediction, right? It is basically us saying that if we exert this energy, cognition, physical energy, emotional energy to engage with this thing, we're going to get this particular reward back. And if we get that reward, we're likely to sustain motivation. We're going to keep right generating the same prediction. And if we don't, we're probably going to stop. So the rewards as you move more and more down the spectrum are intrinsic rewards, okay? Autotelic experiences, satisfaction, pride, engagement, like flow, right? Um, personal growth, meaning, purpose. It's not necessarily accolades, money, rewards. Those are extrinsic motivators. They're external, they're outside the self. Now to your question specifically, I think it's an important one. It's, and this brings us nicely full circle. It's not an either or, I think there's a bit of a both and in this, right? I would argue, having studied a lot of this research and in intrinsic motivation, that ideally people should want to be um, predominantly intrinsically motivated. Right? Why? Well, if you're doing something out of compliance, it typically is going to lead to bare minimum effort. You're going to do just enough to get the reward, the carrot that's being dangled in front of you, or just enough to avoid the punishment 
okay? That's being, um, you know, that you're potentially being threatened with. Intrinsic motivation, again, it comes back to harmonious passion. If you enjoy engaging in the experience yourself, that is the reward. It means you want to keep coming back to it. And it's much easier to engage in the long-term processes that lead to really profound, what I would say, sort of peak potential-like outcomes. That said, motivation is not consistent. So there are times in life where your intrinsic motivation might be waning for whatever particular reason. And maybe you do need to dangle a little carrot in front of you to kind of get you back uh, you know, in the saddle, so to speak. And there's plenty of studies that'll show this. Uh, it's really not kind of 100% of one and 0% of the other. Um, you'll see different sort of motivational profiles. And again, I would, I would say that, you know, if you're looking at a bar chart, you want the intrinsic a little higher, but that doesn't mean there's a complete absence of uh, extrinsic from time to time. So you're right. I think there should be a bit of both. Yeah. And then on the side of the intrinsic motivation, that's where we're most heavily like utilizing our strengths, if we even know what those might be. Or do you have to know what your strengths are to then utilize them in an intrinsic way? Um, or does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I'm processing here. I mean, I don't think you certainly don't have to know what your strengths are in order to use them. Right. Um, when you say in an intrinsic way, if I were to translate that and to say, you know, congruent with the self synthesized and autotelic. I think more often than not, you're going to see an overlap or like a correlation there. Um, just remember, like the basic definition of an intrinsic, you know, intrinsically motivated activity is that the, the experience itself is satisfying. So mm -hmm. typically that means we like that we're doing it. Generally, that means we're good at it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, now, by good at it, that could vary. You know about the challenge skills balance. So we, right. we often want to kind of push the edge of that to get into flow. But, you know, I don't know a whole lot of people or a whole lot of situations where they try to engage in something, find out they're terrible at it, have a really great time doing that and then say, okay, I want to come back. I'm really intrinsically motivated to do that again. Typically there's some presence of strength present in those sort of experiences, I would say. That makes sense. Amazing. Um, we're just barely, obviously just scratching the surface of just what I learned at the Flow Research Collective and obviously what you've been studying and doing research on for years. So that was amazing. Thank you for uh, your wisdom and insight, which it was very wise and insightful. <laughs> My pleasure. I like talking about this stuff and, and you had some great questions. So thanks for, uh, for your insightful line of questioning. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you. All the, all around. Um, where can, um, <laughs> where can the listeners here of Jackson talks, everybody find you on social if they want to, uh, see yeah. more, hear more. Yeah. I'm, you know, just, uh, kind of on the usual platforms, primarily I'll post a lot of stuff, content videos, that sort of thing on Instagram. It's just at Dr. Nick Holton, Dr. Period, Nick Holton. Um, we will be launching the podcast called yes. Flourish FM in the spring. So that's, uh, at Flourish FM podcast. Uh, haven't launched it yet, but we're going to start teasing some of the material, some really wonderful conversations and you can follow us there. And anyone that wants to get in touch with me uh, can just come to my website. Uh, again, just nickholton.com. Sweet. I'm pumped that you're uh, you're getting into the podcast space. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited about it. It's been a lot of fun. Should be interesting.
Yeah, there's some really good ones out there. And I think you'll join that that crew of, of doctors who are putting out really good podcasts. I hope so. We should be so lucky and, and so fortunate, but we'll, yeah. we'll see. We're talking to lots of interesting people, so we'll uh, try to rest on, on the shoulders of, of those giants, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good luck to you in that space. Thanks, bud. Appreciate it. Yeah, this was awesome. Yeah, thanks to you for watching. Thanks, Dr. Nick. And uh, appreciate you guys listening, watching. Share this with a friend. And uh, yeah, talk to you guys next time. Cheers.